Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today. We are grateful for the opportunity to come together like this. We understand that the work of the church that we, we're, we're reading about and studying in the book of Acts is indeed our work. Um, and uh, we appreciate that you have given us this, this peek into these early ministries, these early ministries to carry out your good news and to make sure that people get clothed and fed and so on. Um, we just ask that your Holy Spirit uh, who we know is with us this morning, fills us with lots of energy and enthusiasm and a desire to become better readers of Scripture. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, my friends. So is there anything y'all would like to talk about today before we plunge in? Yes, sir. <laughs> I've had this happen before. Last week, I was talking about the attraction to something, and it was to a bug with a G light. <laughs> As in the movie, it's a bug's life. Now, some people might have misheard me say, saying a Bud Light, as in that beer that is trying to recover, you know, after a few marketing faux pas. A what kind of light? A butt light. B-U-T-T? -T? Well, I don't even know what that would be. <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to have to start spelling it out. A bug light to which bugs, B-U-G-S, are attracted. But what happens to them when they get to the light? They get zapped. So the world offers us all many bangles and baubles and pretty things. Um... And we, um, if we're drawn to them and allow ourselves to follow that path, that is the path that leads to destruction, like a bug light. <laughs> you know, I also want to lift up Missy Dean. If you would keep Missy in your prayers. Missy sits over here. She has been part of the class for, back to the Bible Academy days. And uh, her mom uh, fell and broke her pelvis. And her mom is her father's caregiver, and they live in Florida. So both Mithy, Missy and her sister are rallying to this. It is, of course, you can imagine, just a complete change in life for everybody. And so um, we'll, we'll lift Missy and her family up as we say together, hear our prayers, O Lord. So please do. She, she emailed me this morning. I'm, I, it's just such a sad thing because, you know, we all know it happens. But wow, falling like that is just the thing. Okay, any, any other questions y'all would like to talk about before we get started? Yes. Okay, so you like the Jesus foot washing one with the uh, He Gets Us ad. Some people did, some people didn't like it. So, you know, as with really all the ads are like that, aren't they? Some people like them, some... I'm usually one who doesn't like ads, but anyway, yes, that's a whole campaign, and nobody really knows who's behind it, where it came from. 
but it, they, they spent some money on Sunday. So, all right, anything else? Okay, so we are in chapter three. So we are now leaving the day of Pentecost, right? Chapter two is all about one day, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit arrives and there's the tongue speaking and the sound like a violent wind and the tongues of fire. Peter gets up and gives this powerful, powerful sermon and leaving people with one question, what do we do? What do we do to be saved, Peter? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. And then we got, a, we got a glimpse then, at the end of chapter two, into their life together, that they would come to the temple. Remember I brought these slides last week? They would come to the temple and the big temple courtyards and courts and so forth um, on a sunny day, probably sitting in the shade under the colonnades that encircle this, the Temple Mount. This, it's, hard to describe how large it is. 22, 23 football fields fit inside that temple, that temple mount. And at the center of it is the temple proper. Even the temple courts themselves, which is where some of the action is today. I don't want to blind anybody. Okay. Right here. Even these are quite large. Right? The, the, the rules around all of this is that the closer you get to the temple proper, that tall structure, the more restrictive it becomes. Gentiles could come up here, but they couldn't enter through this gate. Women can enter through this gate, but they can't enter through that gate. And only priests can enter the temple proper, okay? Um, though there seemed to be some by the day of Jesus, some loosening of that because it appears that the Sanhedrin, when it is meeting and it's properly, properly is meeting in a conference room, um, they didn't really call it a conference room, but you know, in a, in, a, in a particular portion of the actual temple proper. But you know, there are, there's just a lot we don't know. Let me just give you one illustration. You could talk to, notice that the way this model is built, there is no bridge connecting the Mount of Olives to this gate right here. There's just the valley, and down at the bottom of that valley is the Garden of Gethsemane. Some people think that there is, and if you look in some study Bibles, the illustration will have a bridge across here. Was there or was there not a bridge? You would think we would know that because nowadays in 2024, well, sure, we would know that. But no, is, is, this is a representation of Jerusalem in the first century with the older walls and the newer walls. Do we know that it's exactly right? No, we don't. We just, we just don't. We just don't have the resources and they weren't as hung up about um, the exactness of certain things that we get hung up on like the time. So I am gonna leave, which slide up? Maybe this slide up as we begin chapter three, verse one. So anything before we plunge in to chapter three? Okay, well let's go. One day, doesn't tell us how far after Pentecost, just one day. Peter and John, now which John is this? Okay, this is John, one of the sons of Zebedee. 
There are two sons of a man named Zebedee. I like that name. Zebedee. It's kind of like zippity doodah, which I liked a lot. Okay? It's two sons of Zebedee. And um, they are part of the innermost circle of the 12 disciples with a capital T. Remember, disciple is a general word. Then within the larger group, all disciple means is really people who are following Jesus in order to, to apprentice him in a way. They want to learn. They want to grow. Within that larger group, there are the capital T-12, representing the new Israel, the ten new tribes around Jesus. That's kind of what that capital T-12 is about. And then there's an innermost group. And that innermost group of three, Peter, James, and John, are, for example, Peter, James, and John are the ones who go up with Jesus for the transfiguration. We just had Transfiguration Sunday, Peter, James. So this is Peter and John, one of the sons of Zebedee, okay? We're going up to the temple, boom, to on my left, at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. The Jews had a regular schedule of prayer times as really Muslims do, right? That, that's one of the five pillars of Islam is the daily prayers at five specific times. And Christians, many Christians do as well. There's a, something called the daily office, right Lauren? Right, the daily office, which will walk you through prayers at specific times each day. If you visit monasteries and, and so forth, they, you will usually find them practicing the daily office. But they're going up to the temple for prayer because, big, big teaching point, these men are righteous Jews. They don't view themselves as having left Judaism. The word converted would not mean anything to them. They would look at you cross-eyed. They are Jews who embrace the Jewish Messiah. That is the way they are now and that is the way they will die. They will never see themselves as having left Judaism. If you pressed them on the point, they would say that many of their fellow Jews failed to embrace the Jews' own Messiah, whose name is Jesus. And indeed, that is part of what, what you know, lies underneath the, the, the speech of Peter that is so really confrontational and blunt to the point in this. So he's gone up there at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called beautiful. We're not really sure where the beautiful gate is. There are suggestions. I think you looked at this one time. Do you feel like there's a really better suggestion than others about where it was? I'd have to look at my notes. I don't really remember there being a lot of clarity around it, but what's so important is that it's a real, it's still to this day called that. Like okay. So, so Lauren makes a good point. These things we read about are not figments of people's imagination. They're real places. Just because we're not sure they, where they were, okay, because actually if you, went to, if you go to Jerusalem today and you look at the walls around the Temple Mount, those are not original walls. Those are crusader walls. 
I mean, that's 2,000 years. So the fact that, and, and the street level was about 15 feet lower. So, but these are all concrete, real places. And just because I can't tell you which gate is a beautiful gate, exactly where it is, doesn't matter. That's what they called it, and that's where the man is hanging out. This lame man, what is he gonna, what is he there for? He's beg for alms. He has no way to survive. There's no governmental social support. He's got either, either he can, has to rely on family or he has to rely on the kindness of strangers to help him out and give him what are traditionally called alms, A-L-M-S. I spelled it just in case. I misunderstood. <laughs> I'm not sure what that would turn into, but I'm being careful. So he, now, now notice the way this is here. Yeah, thank you. He's at the temple gate called Beautiful where he was put every day. Right? Where he was put every day by somebody. We don't know, we don't know who, but somebody's helping him get to this place where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. It is probably, you know, it's hard probably out here that we're talking about. One, some, some, some gate into the larger courtyards, or really from what I read, it might even be a gate into the smaller system. But it, wherever it is, he is put there, he goes there every day, and he begs for alms, and everybody knows he's lame, crippled, he's been that way since his birth. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Of course he does. That's what he's there for. Peter looked straight at him, as did John, and Peter said, look at us. Because, you know, this is routine for this guy, right? He holds out the cup. He just wants, he probably doesn't, does this just every day. He doesn't even hardly look at the people. Just holds the cup out and hopes that somebody will we'll give him something. So Peter looked straight at him as did John, and Peter says, look at us. So the man gave, him, gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Because who says, look at us, unless you're really ready to do something for this guy, right? I love the detail in this story. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have. Now, I will tell you, I'll bet you, that as those words are coming out of Peter's mouth, the guy is crestfallen. He's just going, oh, brother, what am I going to get? A fruitcake? <laughs> A little box of cookies? What am I going to get? <laughs> Peter says, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. And now comes the moment. In the name, and names are powerful for these people. Names carry the The name of Christ carries the power of Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. That's simple. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Now, I've, I know I have people who have not, who are new to the class. 
Christ is not a name. Christ is a title. It is a royal term. It is like calling him Messiah. Underneath it in the Greek is the word Mashiach. In, uh, in Hebrew, I'm sorry, in Hebrew it's Mashiach. In Greek it becomes Christos. Um, in English, Christos becomes Christ. Mashiach in Hebrew becomes Messiah in English. But those are all the same word. They are at the royal term. So it's, he could be in the name of Jesus, the king. And then it tells you where Jesus is from. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This is Jesus of Nazareth we're talking about here, who is king. Walk, straightforward, no adornment, nothing. Straightforward. Taking him by the right hand, this is Peter, reaches down, takes the man by the right hand, right? Because this, this guy can't stand up. He can't walk. He's been that way since birth. He helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. Wow. Wow. He jumped to his feet. That's how perfect this healing is. He jumped to his feet. He doesn't, you know, it doesn't always happen like that. In the Gospels, it doesn't always happen like that. Sometimes people are healed and they get up and they sit up, you know, and um, some of my favorite, sort of like the, one of the most meaningful halfway ones was when Jesus heals a blind man, but it's only partial. He takes, he, he takes, he spits in his hand and takes some dirt and rubs it, and he rubs it in this blind guy's eyes. And the blind guy says, well, I can see, uh, but everyone looks like trees. It was a halfway healing. And then there's the second half in which the man is, is healed. And most scholars think that that is meant to convey the progression of the disciples themselves. See, partly, but, but, not, but not fully. But on the other hand, we have Peter's mother-in-law. Yes, it's his Peter's mother-in-law who um, is down with the fever and they go to the house, Peter and Jesus, and Jesus heals her. And she hops up and she starts making a big pot of spaghetti and some meatballs and she's feeding everybody. And it's, yeah, yeah. So I love this here because the guy, you know, Peter helps, can you imagine being the man? Peter helps him up. You know he feels something happening. What does he feel? I would like to talk to him. What did, what did you feel when this is happening? All of a sudden his feet are strong. His ankles are strong. And he jumps. He jumps to his feet and he began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. The guy's wild. Jewish men don't jump. And yeah, very good. Okay, that gets you a gold star today. Write it down, Patty. Yeah, I like that line a lot. Yeah, yeah. So, so, um, 
Okay, there's a movie entitled White Men Can't Jump with Woody Harrelson. And who was that? Who's the female lead in that? The game show? Rosie Perez. Rosie Perez, yes, with her full-on accent. So any, anyway, so <laughs> I've got to get myself focused here again. <laughs> that cracked me up. Um, in the parable of the prodigal son, remember how, how it, how it well, there's a quite the ending. It's nearly the ending. When the father is going to go down and greet the prodigal returned home, he lifts up his, his skirt, basically, because he would have these long one-piece things, and he runs to pick them up. Jewish men don't do that. It's an expression of just how overcome with joy the father is. Overcome with joy, ready to pour grace out upon this wayward prodigal son who had the audacity to tell father, I wish you were dead, but you're not, and I would like my inheritance now, which is how that parable begins. The father's overjoyed to have him come home as God is overjoyed when any of us come home. So this man goes into the temple courts. He's jumping, he's walking, he's jumping and running, and he's praising God, and he's just beside himself. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to, like minutes before, sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement and what had happened to him. You bet they were. This guy's been lame since birth. Every day he comes to the same place, begging for alms. Everybody knows the story. Everybody knows the guy. And now he's jumping around and praising. They would be amazed, astonished, filled with wonder. They would be confused, I'm sure. Just, we, today we would say their minds would be blown. What's happening? How could this be? Well, verse 11. Scott, yes. Before we get to yeah. 11, about Peter. Yes. For a long time now, Peter and the, and the others have seen Jesus in these healings. So I'm, and, and, and miracles. So I'm wondering, how must they have felt the first time they saw this happen? Saw Jesus do these things, and now all of a sudden, Peter performs his miracle. His yes. Healing. How must he feel now? You, you know, you, it's you, like the, the first time you hit your perfect golf shot right down the middle. You just shake. And now he is able to do what Jesus was doing. Was this his first healing? Uh, um, okay, is this Peter's first healing? Yes. How would Peter have felt? Probably about as good as that golf shot you're describing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. We're going to use the golf shot analogy. Um, so it is... Let's take the astonishment up a level. This is the man who had denied Jesus three times. And now he finds that God has given him this power to heal. The Holy Spirit who dwells in him has given him this power to heal. 
and how must he feel? Well, we're going to find out a little bit because he's going to recognize it's not about him. He's just a vessel for this, okay? Um, which is part of what separates Peter from Jesus. Jesus has the power. Peter is the vessel for the power, okay? But yeah, what I talk about amazed and in wonder at what's happening, that would have to be Peter. So while the man held on to Peter and John, you know, he doesn't want to let them go anywhere, maybe because he's afraid it's going to like wear off or something, I don't know. All the people were astonished and they came running. Of course they did. They came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. Now, the model maker here has this as Solomon's Colonnade. Might have been, okay, on the southern end. Might have been a different side. Doesn't matter. Who cares? That's where the Christians, we are told, are gathering and they're just running. Now, people, crowds are coming because they all have seen this man for years hanging out at this gate, begging alms. We do have a red box. Okay, well, the red box is going to come around. There's and so when. There's a story to that. I happened to meet Connie in the hallway because I was late, and she remembered she didn't bring the box. <laughs> okay, well, I'm glad to know that that happened. Thank you for, taking, for playing a part in that yeah, drama because. We need to collect all the names and addresses for people and get them on the roster so they can find out if we... Because I do think there's a day coming up when we can't meet. But anyway, I will let you know. Okay. So they all come running. They're all gathering in Solomon's Colonnade. You can just imagine the din and the activity and the excitement. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites... Why does this surprise you? <laughs> Why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us? As if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, these are all Jews gathered there. Some of them acknowledge Jesus as Messiah. Many do not, because they're coming from all over the temple courtyards, right? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. So let's talk about that word glory for a minute. Glory is really a social term. To glorify someone is to like lift them up so that everyone can see the truth of them. Um, so-and-so is, um, we, we glorify heroes, but how do we do that? We lift them up, we tell their stories, we pin medals on their chests, we have ceremonies. How is Jesus glorified in the crucifixion? He is lifted up, you see? So here, the man's healing glorifies Jesus because it helps you to understand who Jesus really is. That he is who he claimed to be. That he is who the apostles claim him to be. 
Jesus is glorified in that way. You can see the truth of it. You, you crowds of people. <laughs> so, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his son Jesus. You, here's this blunt confrontation again, you handed him over to be killed. Because it's only weeks before, right? It's six, seven weeks before. I mean, maybe longer. I don't know how long this is after Pentecost, but it's still, you know, recent history. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate. Though Pilate, he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked, that a murderer be released to you. That is the story, is it not? That is what happened. You killed the author of life. That is profound, is it not? The author of life. There are in John's Gospel seven um, I am statements. Seven I am statements. One of the times, one of the seven, is Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the life. Jesus is the author of life. Jesus is fully and completely God. God is, God is the author of life. God is the one who gives life and sustains life in all living beings. And it's such a profound phrasing, you killed the author of life. But death did not win. But God raised him from the dead. Resurrection is about the undoing of death. Res I have new people. We can speak about resuscitating someone like off an operating table, you bring them back to life. Right? It happens. People go cold blue. You resuscitate them. Lifeguards resuscitate people. Bring them back from the brink of death or back from really death, essentially. And what happens? They go back to their regular lives. They proceed to age, get old, hopefully, and then die a second time. That's not resurrection. Resurrection is something different. In resurrection, you are brought through death to a life after death, and then a, as N.T. Wright puts it so well, a life after life after death. A newly embodied life. When you are resurrected, you do not taste death again. Because God's victory over sin on the cross was God's victory over death. Death will not hold us. We will all die unless Jesus comes back first. But death will not hold us. Death is not our end. There is a life after death. There is a life after life after death. And part of being Christian is all of us working together to remind us of that. 
particularly, I think, those who are sort of looking death in the face because of illness or injury, to remind, no, 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 no. Death is not your end. There is a life after death. And then indeed, what the Bible wants to talk about, really, is this life after life after death. So when Peter says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. That is speaking of Jesus' resurrection to a newly embodied life. And as Paul says, just as Jesus was resurrected, so shall we all be resurrected. 1 Corinthians 15. And then Peter says, we are witnesses of this. Witnesses of what? Witnesses of the resurrection. How many people met the resurrected Christ? Think about that for a minute. How many people met the resurrected Christ? Resurrected Jesus. Jesus walking, talking, eating fish. Twelve. Paul says five hundred, yes. Paul says more than 500 brothers and sisters, in addition to the 12 apostles and Paul himself, encountered the resurrected Jesus. So, um, and it's, when he writes that in 1 Corinthians, it's as if he's daring people, because he says that most of them are still alive, many of them are, go, go ask them. Go ask what they saw. So it wasn't this little private affair of only a few people who could give testimony to Jesus' resurrection. There's 500, and it is one of the earliest pieces of memory that we have in the New Testament. The whole little section there around that is very rhythmic, very methodical, very creed-like. Um, people like Richard Balkum and others say, no, it goes back. It's, it goes back to at least a year, within a year after Jesus' death and resurrection, people are saying this about Jesus' resurrection. This is their testimony. Because if it's true, it changes everything. And if it's not true, we are wasting our time. And so Peter says, we are witnesses of this. Of, of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, and when you put your trust, which is the best synonym for faith, when you put your trust in Jesus, you are putting your trust in the proclamation of what he did and in the truth of the resurrection. They're all bound up together. You can't really say, I got faith in Jesus, but I don't think he was actually resurrected. Those two don't work. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can all see. So by putting it that way, that it's Jesus and the faith that comes through him accomplished this healing, you see that we as God's people are bound up with this. We are bound up with this. Our faith matters. How many times in the gospel does Jesus say, your faith has healed you? 
Your faith has healed you. We are... You know, the... People misunderstand the so-called miracle. I call them so-called miracles because everybody gets like, really excited about them. That God, they're really just occasions when God works in a very surprising way. And they're surprising because these people have no explanations for this. Some of the things that Jesus does happen today because of medicine and doctors and the rest, right? So if you can sign God and his miracles to only the stuff you can't explain, you're the, the, the amount of stuff that you're going to willing to see God in is going to get smaller and smaller because by the glory of God we can explain more and more about this world that God has created. So, but it is bound up with our own faith. That is the thing. We're not just observers of what Jesus does. Our faith matters. We can't just look at Jesus and say, well, why don't you do this, or you do that, Jesus, or you do this, Jesus, or you do this, Jesus. We are bound up in that, every piece of that. Uh, sometimes I call it, you know, God not having a magic wand. Faith is bound up with these healings because faith is bound up with our salvation. And to carry this one more step, y'all, y'all, see, there we go, y'all, use guys, y'all, y'all have all heard the word shalom, right? Which I sometimes think is being Hebrew for saying goodbye. It's really Hebrew for saying peace, but it's really even larger than that. It is a greeting which, which speaks to the wholeness, W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S, -E -E the wholeness of us all. <laughs> I love this. I just love this. Okay, so, right? So if I wish somebody shalom, I'm wishing peace upon them, well-being, spiritually, emotionally, physically, of their whole self and their relationship with God, and their relationship with others. That's what shalom is. And um, that is what these healings are about. The healings are not just physical healings, like a doctor can do in our world. They are healings of the whole person. So when Jesus would say to somebody, your faith has made you well, he is speaking to the person spiritually, socially, um, they're saved in the way we think of salvation in addition to the physical side because it's all bound up together. It's not all in separate little boxes. Okay? He has, it is Jesus' name and the face that comes through him that has completely healed him. As you can all see. All right, so let me pause right there, see if there's any questions or things y'all would like to talk about. Mm -hmm. Peter did, you see. Peter would admit, have to admit that he was in the group that denied Jesus or disowned Jesus. I mean, that's, the, that's such a shocking piece. And even to carry it a step further, 
I'm with those who think Mark, the Gospel of Mark, is Peter's eyewitness testimony. Heard by John Mark many times, written down, finally the Gospel emerges. And is Peter's three-time denial in there? Yes. So it isn't a story that other people told on Peter. Peter recounted it himself. Why? Because it demonstrates God can save everyone. He doesn't say that here. I, I grant you, yes. Uh, of course, he's not right. Yes, go ahead. So the, other, the other question on the miracle. So with, when he talks about the faith of Jesus, the, the beggar was just asking for money. I mean, I didn't see anything that indicated that the beggar was putting faith in Jesus. Is he saying our faith in Jesus has cured him? Think of the faith as this whole, this whole, It's all of these people together, and this man is, is brought into that by Peter when he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven, okay? And so he is pulled into this, and how does he respond? With overwhelming joy. Just overwhelming, he's jumping up and down and running around and screaming and praising God and, everything else, right? But um, the point is that faith is inextricably bound up with these healings because these healings are more than just letting a lame man walk or a blind man see. To get to the heart of these healings, along with Jesus' healings, they are, they are occasions when the kingdom of God comes bursting out. Because in the kingdom of God there are no lame, there are no blind, there are no crippled, there's none of this. And so when Jesus would heal somebody, it's the, king, the kingdom of God is coming bursting out. They're for everybody to see in that event. And it's the same thing here because the Holy Spirit is making sure that what began with Jesus is not disappearing. It's going to continue, and it will change. I'm with those who think that the, well, there's three periods in the Bible when these miracles happen. One with Moses, one with Elijah and Elisha, and now here in the first century. Because once they've served their purpose, they seem to subside and abate. And people will say to me, why doesn't somebody do these kind of miracles today? What does Jesus say about that? In the gospel he says, you know, I could die and be raised in three days and still people wouldn't believe. People don't. That isn't what, that isn't what keeps people from Jesus. There's a whole lot of agenda, agenda items before that. Yes. Right understanding 
what stopped it, and then we moved back to Dallas, and I went to a doctor who gave me a referral for a cardiologist, and then his son took over the practice, and his son asked me, well, you know, what happened with your heart attack? Explain to you what stopped it, and I was like, I really don't know. And he read my file, and he turned to me and said, I go, well, what stopped my heart attack? And he said nothing. They had done a stent, they had done angioplasty, they had done chemicals, and nothing stopped it. It just ran its course, and I looked at that young cardiologist and I said, that's God. It, and, and, and if you talk with people, you, you come across these stories. And one well-regarded New Testament scholar named Craig Keener has gone around and collected around the world these kinds of stories to demonstrate that, yes, God still works. Now, what I, I just want to clarify what I said a moment ago. These three periods of miracles are where there are specific persons given the power to do these over and over and over again. Okay, like Moses, like Elijah, like Elisha, like Jesus, like Peter here. I don't think that is the case today, that you're not going to find a genuine faith healer who can heal sort of on demand. But that, put that whole thing aside, does God work in this world in surprising ways? Does God answer prayers? Yes. If you don't think God answers your prayers, God's probably not going to. Who would? Who would do that? So do I. I've talked to enough people. Now, if you ask me to explain why you were healed in that way, and yet we could find somebody else who says, well, what about my sister? I can't answer those questions, because I'm not God. I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. All we can do, what can we do? Just be grateful when good things happen in your life. Be grateful to God in all things. Just learn to live a life of gratefulness. And don't, you will, if you think you can really answer all of the W-H-Y questions that you might have for God, you will be frustrated your whole life. Why this? Why that? Why this? Why that? Why this? Why that? And there's a whole lot of I don't knows at the end of those strings. We can, we can say something, right? It's not that we can't say nothing. We, we have something to say, but we, we often can't say everything because really, we're not God. We're not God. And the scripture is not here to answer every single question for us that we might have. Why do we have scripture? So that we can come to know God and we can know the extent to which God has gone in order to rescue humankind from brokenness and sin. Um, so, I'll, thank you for that. Yes. You you gotta ask. You got. You just need to have a 
consistent life of prayer. You want to live your life before God all of the time. And um, if, if you don't, if, you, if you're a person who tends to think God doesn't really answer prayers because you've maybe been praying for the same thing for 20 years, all I'm going to tell you, if you let that lead you to the conclusion that God doesn't answer prayers, you're going to end up lost. Dallas Willard says, look, if you don't think God's going to answer prayers and they're just some sort of empty, then a, a, of course God isn't going to hear that. I mean, who would? Who would, right? Yeah, so, so a strong prayer life, a strong life acknowledging. Patty has things that she has prayed for for our entire marriage, and we're still waiting for. <laughs> but that's okay. The power lies in the prayers. Yes. But some we have seen. Some we have. Yes. Charles. If you don't believe in miracles, you don't believe in God. Well, you can certainly, if you don't believe in miracles, your God is way too small. If you don't think God can do things in this world that surprise you, you are way too small. Okay? How about that? Who need, nobody needs a small, there's a whole famous book written, right? I forget who wrote it, some, your God is too small, famous little bit some years ago but that's okay all right Scott, doesn't, um, in the book of Job where everything is awful happening to Job and when he asked God why because he was a righteous man why is this happening to me God says to him I'm God you're not and he does in the end get repaid back God did make something good out of it but we never explained why the other bad things possibly happen just that we know that God's in control. That's right. God doesn't give him an explanation for everything, right? right? Yes. So Job, in the book of Job, Job suffers. Does he know why? No. Do we know why as the readers? Yes. We're told what's happened. But does Job? No. And his friends offer up all kinds of suggestions, most of them centered on what? Um, you're suffering because you must have made God angry. Or if not you, your wife. Or your rotten kids. <laughs> no, and finally at the end, God shows up, but I don't know, chapter 37 or something, in a whirlwind and says, basically, who do you think you are? I'm God, you're not. Don't think you can understand everything that happens here or why I do what I do. And that is such a good point because a lot of us, want to believe in a God that is perfectly, perfectly acceptable to us. But who should, who is God? God is God. God is who God is. And we should come to know who God actually is rather than trying to invent a God that seems acceptable to us. All right. Let's go to verse 17. Now, fellow Israelites, this is Peter still. He says, I know that you acted in ignorance. 
as did your leaders. That's really both true and kind. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all of the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. This is Jesus through and through. He is the fulfillment of everything that came before. It's why he wasn't born in London, you know, a thousand years ago, or Moscow 500 years ago, or Dallas 100 years ago. He, Jesus, is Jewish. This is, the Jews are the ones, are the family of Abraham, and Abraham and his family were the ones chosen by God to be the ones through whom God would reconcile humanity to himself. And Jesus' point in the Gospels, Peter's point here, is that if you read the, God, read the scriptures well, you would understand. And so Isaiah 53, about the suffering servant, is about whom? It's about Jesus. And if you're not real familiar with Isaiah 53, go home and read it later. It's like a little mini resume of Jesus. The Jews of Jesus' day didn't see it that way. They thought the suffering servant was Israel itself. But it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And so Peter says, the prophets have told you that the Messiah would suffer. Repent then, repeating what he had said on the day of Pentecost, repent then and turn to God. Because remember, repentance is this turning word. It's like a, what is it? It's like a Texas U-turn. <laughs> is, is Texas the only place those U-turns exist? Greatest invention. Greatest invention of the last century, Texas U-turn. Anyway. Whoa, 180 degrees. Turn yourself around and get headed toward God. <laughs> Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Because what is the consistent Christian message for 2,000 years? Jesus is coming back. He will return. We're 2,000 years later. We're still waiting. We might wait a long time. We might all be dead and gone. Might not be. Could be, could be, what, tomorrow's Valentine's Day, Ash Wednesday, could be tomorrow, I don't know. But this Messiah, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until time, until the time comes for God to restore everything. That's Revelation chapters 21 and 22. If those pages in your Bible are glued together by the gold gilt on the edge, unglue them and come back to them regularly. They are the God-given portrait not using literal bookkeeping language but like impressionist painting drawn almost completely from the Old Testament 
of the restore, restoration of creation, the renewal of creation, the reconciliation of God's people with God. Heaven must receive him, Jesus, until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Revelation 21 and 22 is, that is the ultimate, fully manifest, fully consummated expression of what the prophets said hundreds of years before Jesus. He's saying to them, it may not look like it now, but it is, it has happened and it is happening and it is going to happen. Verse 22, for Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. And for Peter, the person in view here in this quote from Moses is Jesus. Jesus, among other ways you could describe Jesus, he was an apocalyptic prophet, announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God. It's his first words in Mark's gospel, the first gospel to be written, first words. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent to believe in the good news. That sounds like Peter right here, doesn't it? To me. It's time, baby, it's happening, the kingdom of God is arriving, Jesus said. Repent. <laughs> the good news is here. And it's really what Peter, it's really Peter saying the same thing. <coughs> Verse 24, Indeed, Peter goes on, beginning with Samuel, all of the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He's just, in just a little bit here, he's reminding them of their own history. Made a covenant you made. You see, they are the inheritors of a covenant made with God by their ancestors at Mount Sinai. A covenant that their ancestors said, yeah, we're ready. Three times they say, yeah, 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 we're ready. And they instantly, basically instantly, break that covenant but God made promises God made that covenant the promises are brought by the prophets time and time again um, most of the prophets if they bring words of warning about hey you guys are driving your truck off the cliff they end with these uplifting words of a day the Lord's day the day when things will be put right. When everyone sits under their fig trees and they're all living at peace and they're shaping spears into pruning hooks and so on. Everyone gets to enjoy the fruits of their own labor. There's no mourning, there's no crying. The tears have been wiped away. All of these glorious images of a world put right the kind of world we would all like to live in. 
These people are heirs of those promises. Sadly, they're also heirs of <laughs> the rebellion of their ancestors. And now most of them have not, are not choosing Jesus. Peter goes on. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. Hallelujah. That is from Genesis 12, 3. And it's vitally important to plant that in your memory. Don't, have, don't make yourself have to turn to it. Genesis 12, 3. God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a land, the promised land. I'm going to give you descendants more numerous than the stars. That's the family of Abraham of which Jesus is part. And the third promise is the big one. All of the families of the earth will be blessed through you. That's the project. the project. The project is not simply to rescue Abraham and his family. The project is to rescue humankind. Abraham's family, the Israelites slash the Jews, are merely the ones through whom God is acting. They are the agent for God's work in this world. You know? So yes. I just, I'm just so grateful that Luke included this part of this speech that day. He said to Abraham, through your offspring all peoples on earth will be blessed. That is the project that God's been on since nearly 2,000 years before Jesus. And that is the project that you and I are part of. It's a project that's now been running 4,000 years. And we are all given tasks and vocations and work to do in that project. Verse 26. When God raised up his servant, that's Jesus, speaking of his resurrection, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. That's Pentecost, that's Jesus for the six weeks after his resurrection, that's Jesus with at least 500 Jews who could be witnesses to his resurrection. Um, it's Jesus calling everybody. First the Jews, because what, how did Acts begin? Where to be his witnesses? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth because that's the project so Peter covers a lot of ground here in this speech again again you can go back this is like this succinct little presentation and it won't be the last one we encounter in the book of Acts the book of Acts is real good training ground for us all to, to really grasp the full scope of Scripture and God's work in this world so, okay, when we come back here next week, we're going to talk about, well, the consequences of Peter's boldness that day, chapter 4. So, what kind of, any last question I could answer for you? Yes.
Yeah, Mount Moriah, yes. I believe that's so. Yes. Where this where that this tall structure is is where the Dome of the Rock is. The golden if you look at a picture of our Jerusalem today that has this big golden dome, just understand as impressive as the golden dome is, that structure was twice as tall. Just towering, towering over the over the city. People came from other parts of the world to just see the wonder of what Herod had built here in the temple and in the Temple Mount. Okay, anything else? Verse 17, and Peter says, I know you were ignorant as were your rulers. When Jesus began his calling his disciples, how many people do you think knew so the question posed to me is, when Jesus began his work, how many people really knew his mission? My answer would be zero. When he is crucified, how many people really understand what's happening? My answer would be zero. They don't, this is a constant theme in the Gospels. They don't get it. They don't get it. Why don't they get it? Because it's so, so far from their expectation. What was, who was the Messiah to be? Somebody who got crucified? No. God would raise up this strong man who would lead the Jews, kick out the dang Romans, cleanse the temple, Mighty, wonder, power, glory, all that stuff, all that big billboard stuff. So when Jesus shows up from Nazareth and ends up crucified, the only conclusion any of them would come to is, well, he was a great teacher, but he wasn't the Messiah. Crucified Messiah are two words you could not put together in their minds. And if you carried it a step further and you tried to convince them that this Messiah was also God himself incarnate, <laughs> no way, their heads would just like explode. No way, those are two completely separate categories. There's nothing divine in the Jewish understanding of the Messiah. It was to be a person like David. Anything divine about David? No, he's a person. Lifted up by God for God's purposes, so the Messiah would be a person lifted up by God for God's purposes. Messiah and God, two separate categories. If, if, you, if you don't understand that when you come to the New Testament, where you see it coming, these coming together in Jesus, if you don't see that it starts this way, you, you're just like lost. You're lost. So one other thing back here, I saw a hand. Would, did Mary real? Did Mary really grasp? I don't think so. I know she had these amazing experiences, right? And she even spoke of them. But then on an occasion, they came. We're told they came to find Jesus. That they thought he was, he was kind of like, lost his mind. So I think we want to imagine that they all really, really get this. 
but they don't. I just don't. I just. I just don't think that's the witness of Scripture. Scott, do you think John the Baptist would be about the closest to know what, Je what Jesus is up to? I don't. I don't see why it would be John the Baptist. Being why. Um, Even for John the Baptist, to really grasp who Jesus is, God incarnate, as God's Messiah, really? Really? I mean, a lot of, a lot of supposed Christians today want you to, to deny it, okay, if you go to some parts of Christendom. so. I, I, I don't feel compelled to think that, that there's really anybody who gets it. I think the scriptural witnesses, they don't, until what happens? When does it begin to sink into them? What has happened? The resurrection, and then Pentecost, and what comes after that? And then Paul is the one who in his letters wrestles with, well, here's what happened. But let me, let's talk about what it means for the world and for each of us. So, but, um, John the Baptist referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God. Sure, so and... walking up to the Jordan. Yes, yes, he does. And, and if you were to look to one place where you see this really strong indication of, of, of Jesus's suffering because the Lamb of God could be tied, not that have to be, but could be tied and should be tied to the Passover. That, that's the place yeah, I would go, yes, Ned. But there's, there's no other indication that John, John grasped this. Does John hear what God, what, Jesus, what God has to say about Jesus at the Jordan River? Who hears that? I think it's only Jesus who hears it. And even when he calls Jesus my son, there are other people in the Old Testament referred to as the sons of God. So, I, you know, I think in terms of really grasping how big God is, we need to let the astonishment of what God did seep into every part of our being, that God himself took on human flesh, and who could really understand that? Do we really even understand that now? Whew. Exactly. I think it is just like, just, just, it's what makes Christianity unique. I remember, I'm gonna close with this thought, because I know I'm a few minutes past my time, a couple minutes. It's easy, it's easy to shout God's greatness. That's something the Muslims do, right? I mean, they're really good at God is great, God is great. Look around, God is great. But this, this, the incarnation, that God would be born to a 14-year-old Jewish girl in a dusty, remote village in the Roman Empire is that would be blasphemy for everybody in the world except for Christians who say, no, that is true. And what does it mean? 
What does the incarnation mean? And what does it mean for all of us, culminating in the crucifixion and the resurrection? What does it mean? And that is what Paul does. Paul is the one who makes us wrestle with those implications. So, anyway, okay, very good. Yeehaw. <laughs> so, let's do this. We'll pray, and, and we'll come back next week. We're going we're gonna to be pressing on and, and look at some, some other parts of this. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful, grateful, grateful for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. And even today, I suspect, really, really grasping the, the, the magnificence and wonder of the Incarnation is something that it's easy to come from our lips, even from our hearts, but to really, to really come to grips with what that means is, is difficult. Um, so many of us want to just simply turn Jesus into uh, to our buddy or and, and just lose lose sight of of who he truly is the author of life the author of life but let us come in small steps closer and closer to taking within ourselves these deep truths for in them we will come to know you better, and in them we will come to be better disciples of the author of, of life, the author of life. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.